Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cash Arts presenting a Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder National Broadway Tour, the farcical story of an heir to a fortune who sets out to jump the line of succession by eliminating his eight relatives. May 9th and 10th at 7.30 p.m. Ticket information at cashearts.org. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. From Daniel Boone to Teddy Roosevelt, hunting is one of America's most sacred but also most fraught traditions. It was promoted in the 19th century as a way to reconnect soft urban Americans with nature and to the legacy of the country's pathfinding heroes. Fair Chase, a hunting code of ethics emphasizing fairness, rugged independence, and restraint toward wildlife, emerged as a worldview and gave birth to the conservation movement, but sports popularity also caused class, ethnic, and racial divisions and stirred debate about the treatment of Native Americans and the role of hunting in preparing young men for war. In his new book, The Fair Chase, the epic story of hunting in America, historian Philip Dre tells the story of hunting in America, showing us how this sport has reshaped or shaped our national identity. Philip Dre is a historian who has written or co-authored seven books on American history and culture, He's the author of uh, At Person at the Hands of Persons Unknown, The Lynching of Black America, which won the Robert F. Kennedy Book Award and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. His book Capital Men, the epic story of reconstruction through the lives of the first black congressman, was a New York Times notable book and received the Peter Seaborg Award for Civil War Scholarship. Philip Dre lives in Brooklyn and uh, joins us for the hour. Thanks for joining us. Glad, glad to be here. Thank you. I wonder, uh, we'll spend the vast majority of the hour on the fair chase, very interesting story, epic story of hunting in America, but uh, I wanted to ask you, especially with the opening of a new memorial on lynching, you've written a book on this, of course, uh, whether you've seen the pictures, and uh, what do you think of the uh, new National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama? Well, it looks incredible. Um, I've only seen the photos. I've not been there myself. Um, You know... To me, I, the book that I wrote about history of the history of lynching in America was almost 20 years ago now. And at the time, you know, even then, very few people really knew much about this terrible legacy. Um, and so the fact that we've come far enough that there can be this large, not only a national monument of this kind, but also, of course, a, new, a whole new conversation about it. Uh, is remarkable to me because it was something that was for so long a kind of uh, ignored, hidden part of our past, something we just really weren't comfortable dealing with. Uh, and so, it, yeah, for me, it's a it's a huge step, and I'm very curious to see the memorial myself and to to learn more about it. This just looks extraordinary. Just looking at the pictures, it's. Uh... Uh, you know, my feeling was awe and distress, I guess is appropriate. Apparently the, the, they're headstones, but they're not in the ground. You, the floor slopes down, and as you enter the memorial, you're looking up at these at these headstones, uh, just as okay. onlookers would have looked at the victims of lynching uh, at the time. Right, because that's very consistent with lynchings were often spectacles, uh, often quite large public spectacles where hundreds of people would come to observe and so or uh, to spectate really and so that's very much that part of the memorial is kind of is echoing this um but yeah it's a very provocative uh memorial from the images i've seen and it'll be interesting to see how people react to learning i think as you've seen there's been a lot of a lot being written about it now too um you know for many many years people thought of lynchings as um unusual or unique events, aberrational, if you will. And I think what they're seeing now with this memorial is that it really was an institutionalized form of racial violence that had a very long historical trajectory. I think that's really what the memorial uh, communicates very well, and I think it'll be interesting to see how, how our society adjusts to it. What do you think, at the time you wrote your book, uh, you know there were there were gaps, and your 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 book uh, moved us forward in in knowledge. Now almost twenty years, um, advancing in knowledge. What uh, in what ways do you think, and what do we still have ways to go in our bringing this into the public well, consciousness? I think one reason it resonates so clearly today or loudly is, of course, in the last four or five years, uh, because of the Black Lives Matter movement, and of course what what caused that to come about, which was the reports of uh, the 
police brutality, the punishment of black suspects in custody. Um, and of course, this, in a way, har- any kind of racial profiling, the denial of due process to to black suspects or people in custody, um, is something that harkens back to the lynching ethos, uh, which was more or less that, basically, that all the white men were the police and all the black men were the criminals. And that, that in other words, that due process of law, a courtroom, a trial, lawyers' arguments, that sort of thing was not required. Um, and so that's how you wound up with ex- what they call extra-legal lynching um, uh, and punishment, basically, for thousands of people, uh, men and women both, actually. So in a way, I think there is a current, we see that it's still resonant in our society. I think that's why it speaks so powerfully to us now. Yeah, I think that's what and that's what worries us, right? Because the, this this is also the always a possibility lurking somewhere in human nature and if you get the right circumstances otherwise civilized yeah. citizens can can resort to this. I think that yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think there's a larger thing too going on which is that you know, I think up until maybe like 10 years ago or so for many years after the civil rights movement we all had a kind of sense of the redemptive power of the civil rights movement, and as much suffering has had occurred and as much pain, I think a lot of us had a kind of hopeful take on it, that, well, yes, these terrible things have happened, but now we've reached a better place. We have laws, the Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act, and so on. We're moving forward. We'll never go back to those dark times. But I think subsequently things have turned a little more pessimistic. I don't, as you know, the Voting Rights Act was gutted by the Supreme Court, and there's still a lot of voter suppression that goes on aimed at people of color. In addition to these police murder killings or murders that I, I've mentioned, so it kind of, it, it takes us back a ways, and I think people feel less hopeful, less optimistic about race relations in this country right now. And of course, that too then reminds us that the legacy of lynching is not as far away from us, perhaps, as we like to think. What, what, when was the last lynching? What, I've, I've seen a presentation where you said that's, it's kind of hard to pin it down, but uh, when do we think? Well, it's interesting, because a lynching technically was, uh, as I think Congress or the Justice Department defined it, was it always had to involve at least three people acting in concert. And so, of course, there's also hate crimes, which nowadays sometimes are similar to lynching. But a lynching always involved a denial of due process. And in other words, it involved someone being accused of a crime, but then being punished before he or she could actually enjoy a right to due process, basically, in a courtroom uh, before a judge. And so, uh, yeah, it's hard to say. Well, people differ when the last lynching was. I always think it might have been the lynching in 1964 of the three civil rights workers in Mississippi, Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney, um, partly because it was a very typical kind of lynching, a very almost historic in terms of the police being involved, the police held the suspects and intentionally released them to a mob of Klansmen. Um, they were then murdered on the side of a road nearby. Um, the the evidence was hidden. It took the FBI many weeks to discover what had occurred. Um, in a certain way, that was perhaps the last. Also, I say that because it was the first lynching that was successfully prosecuted by the federal government since Reconstruction in the mm-hmm. South. In other words, it took about 100 years um, for the authorities to be able to successfully convict uh, for a lynching. Mm-hmm. So that itself right in itself, tells you quite a bit about the kind of insular nature of those who, the, the South and those who committed these crimes, the the anonymity that was attached to it, and the fact that people, sure, either they, people were not indicted, they were not convicted, uh, it took a very long time. So I kind of think of it, and in the late 1960s, other people might differ, um, for all intents and purposes, that's what I, I use. Certainly in my book, that was what I, I used that as kind of an end point. It was, it was interesting to me, you would pointed out that uh, once enough public pressure was brought to bear on lynching per se, 
then uh, then the I guess the technique was let's just move it into the courtroom. Let's let's put some legal trappings on it, and we'll we'll have essentially what became sham trials. That's right. Yeah, those were called legal lynchings, and yes, you're exactly right. I mean, some of them were absolutely ludicrous in how sham they were. In other words, the the mob would be allowed into the courtroom. They were armed. So there was very little doubt about what which way the trial was going to go. The trial itself might last all of eight or nine minutes, um, and so on. Um, in other cases, it was a more formal affair. Uh, you know, like the famous Scottsboro case was one where it was, of course, fortunately, they, the uh, suspects were not lynched in the end, but it was a kind of a legal lynching procedure. In other words, their guilt was assumed, it was just more of a formality. It was thought that, well, we're just going to, you know, these 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 uh, suspects are going to be dealt with summarily or whatever through the law, but we're going through the steps, basically. Mm. Uh, Last couple of points on this, and we'll turn to the fair chase. But uh, as you pointed out earlier in our conversation, this has resonance to today, right? Uh, some people say, well, can't we just forget the past? Can't we just move on? But, uh, you know, I was uh, reading about this, watching your presentations on, on this. Just one example, um, African-Americans' distrust of the legal system, it, it didn't, that just didn't start yesterday, right? That no, is. you're absolutely right. That is definitely one of the legacies of, of lynching. It had to do with how cheap a black life was, basically, for so long in America. Um, you know, for... for more than a century after, uh, you know, after Reconstruction, during Reconstruction, um, you, you're you absolutely right. And a lot of things that vestiges of it still exist, in other words, racial profiling, uh, the tendency to assume black criminality um, in either a social context or where the police are involved. And, of course, this has been, we all know this because we see it repeated frequently in our own lives, and of course, in these cases that we often hear about, there's a general a tendency to assume that a black person is guilty of something, especially when they've been, when we're, you know, there's the police are on the lookout for someone or whatever it might be. So, so yeah, it's absolutely right. It is, and of course, it terrorizes black families. That's one thing that, you know, lynchings were not, they terrorized people hundreds, hundreds of miles away. They were, they were horrific incidents. Um, if you read, like, the works of Richard Wright, for instance, the famous American black author, he writes extensively about what it was like to grow up in the Deep South in the lynching era when all parents and worry, were fearful of this. And, of course, we see this even today. Parents warn their black sons to, you know, how to beware of the police, how to behave in their custody, and so on and so on. Again, that's a legacy of that of that past. Final question on this. Um... Where do you hope the conversation goes, a national conversation, with, you know, maybe on the occasion of the opening of this uh, memorial in Montgomery, Alabama? Uh, you know, awareness, a reckoning, what, uh, what comes to your mind? Well, you know what they always say, it's a good, it's an acknowledgement is the first step. And, uh, you know, I think this is a history that has been, been hidden for many years. Either people didn't want to talk about it, even today, as you know, you probably have read you know, people in a lot of whites in the South are not happy about this memorial. They feel it besmirches the history of the region. It's what, whatever. Um, it's never been something that people have particularly wanted to know about, or white people at least. And um, yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, I think that any just starting to talk about it, whatever comes of it, I think will be something good because it just raises awareness. And again, it may it may shine a light on our current situation in ways that are informative. Uh, one can hope for that, certainly. We're talking with the historian uh, Philip Dre, and a previous book was uh, subtitled The uh, Lynching of Black America. Uh, the title is intriguing, at, at the Hands of Persons Unknown. Th- this was the standard, uh, I guess, verdict from the from the coroner? In, uh, the lynching That's right. Court. That's right. Death at the Hands of Persons Unknown, which, of course, was such a meaningful phrase because in reality everybody knew who who had brought this person's death about uh these lynchings happen very often in rural communities uh it was no secret who'd been involved um but that was part of the ethos of lynching the idea that it is the community acting to enforce a code 
um, and therefore no persons are identified. Uh, it's literally an extra-legal event. It's almost, it doesn't take place in a courtroom. There's no record of it. Of course, the irony here is that these incidents made incredible news copy. The newspapers were very into following lynching cases because it gave them a chance to, in the Victorian period, to write this kind of purple prose about young maidens and, you know, being seduced and so on and, you know, black sexual beasts and this sort of thing. And so what happened is that there is a record of these incidents, mostly from newspapers uh, that were collected over the years. So even though the courts had nothing to do with these cases, and they were meant to be hushed up, and as you say, at the hands of persons unknown, they did become known, and they became remembered. And that's where a lot of lynching records that we now have are basically based on these contemporary press accounts. Just a, a couple more, I, I said finally, but a couple more. It's so interesting, so important, this topic. Um, uh, watching this presentation that I was viewing just a couple of days ago, um, once I learned about Memorial and uh, and uh, learned you were you were coming on, um, there there was I can't remember who this was, but someone um, some an anti lynching activist I believe, um, basically called white society out and said you have this you know you mentioned the purple prose the newspaper egging this on because mm -hmm. we we have to stop black men from uh, raping white women, and this right. person this person was turned it around they said well. Our concerns are perhaps that uh, we're fearing that black men, newly freed, will act exactly how many white men did for so many decades. That's right. That's right. That was always, of course, the... Yes, that's exactly right. There were several, like Ida B. Wells was one person who raised that issue, and others did as well, said basically this is very hypocritical. And really what's going on here is white guilt over the way, the access that white men had for so long to black women in slavery enslaved black women, and that now the fear is that white women will have consensual relations with black men. And indeed, that was the case in a lot of lynchings, where the white community could not countenance the fact that a white woman was having a consensual relationship with a black man. Mm. And thus, the black man became then accused of, of, of transcending uh, laws and norms. Um, so, yes, you're absolutely right. That was the great hypocrisy of it. And those who did try to expose it ended up having to flee for their lives. I mean, Ida B. Wells, left the, well, she left the South with basically a mob of her own at, at her heels, um, and, and others as well. It was like a suicidal thing to say if you lived in the South. Even as late as the 1950s in Mississippi, a man was executed, Willie McGee, because the Supreme Court of Mississippi would not countenance the fact that a white woman would actually agree to have sex with a black man. They basically admitted it. They said, you're asking us, they said this to Northern reformers who were trying to intervene. They said, you're asking us to admit that this, this woman had a consensual affair with a black man, and we just cannot do that. This was in about 19, I don't know, 1954, 1955. So just goes to show you that was a very a long-lasting uh, predilection on the part of white Southerners. And, again, they could become very upset if you raised this issue. Uh, but you're absolutely right. That was the kind of underlying hypocrisy behind it. How did, maybe lessons for today, uh, how did, uh, there was public pressure brought to bear, right? And, and after a long, long time, it, it was successful, Um at least in part, how, how did that happen, and what, what can we learn about that? Well, a very interesting story, of course, is that uh, partly had to do with the NAACP, which, you know, actually kind of started in response to the, the scourge of lynching. You have to bear in mind that 100 years ago or more, men were being lynched every other day in America. It wasn't just a thing that happened every so often. It was, you could open a newspaper almost any day of the week, and there would be some part of the story of a lynching, either one that was someone who, a suspect who was being chased or a lynching that had just occurred, and so on and so on. Um, and so the NAACP really kind of began in 1910 with this idea that they needed to form a biracial coalition of people from all across the country to fight this. 
Um, and it, you know, it took a long time. Uh, they used everything they could do. They, they tried having federal laws passed, anti-lynching laws. You know, that's a story that's kind of forgotten today, but the anti-lynching crusade was a huge reform movement in America from around the time of the First World War up until the 1940s. They eventually, they failed to get a federal law, but they worked hard at doing this, and they did eventually get several state laws against lynching. A big turn came when they reached the law enforcement community, because that had always been the important part of any lynching, was the cooperation of law enforcement, either actively or passively, in just turning a blind eye, or actually in being involved sometimes, like, you know, basically like leaving the keys to the jail cell, you know, in the lock, basically, for a lynch mob. And so... Once you did that in the 1920s and 30s through reform efforts, public relations, and even the passage of state laws that punish sheriffs who were negligent, you began to have the law enforcement community say, enough, we're not going to take part in this anymore. Mm. And that was a huge change uh, when that happened, because then that put sort of the kibosh on mob activity to a certain extent, because the sheriff knew who the local characters were who were agitating for this, they were the ones who were in the position to kind of really suppress mob activity or even stand up to a lynch mob, um, which took a lot of courage, as we can imagine. Um, but it happened very slowly. There was kind of moral suasion, you know, after the First World War, and you had fears of, like, Bolsheviks and this kind of thing in America. Suddenly, lynch mobs became, they became conflated with anarchy. And just as people in big cities worried about anarchist labor, radicals, that kind of thing, people began to look to the countryside and say, well, look at this anarchy going on there. That's not America. That shouldn't be who we are. Mobs of people disobeying the law, taking the law into their own hands. So it was a kind of, these kind of things all contributed a change of mood, the modernization of the South, uh, rural areas becoming less insular, less remote. Um, even the ac the advent of the telephone. You know, there was a one group of white Southern women who were former telephone operators, and they had the idea that they could use the telephone to bombard jails where black inmates were being held. If they thought a lynch mob was forming, they would have like a telephone campaign, basically, and call the jail and say, we know that we, we're watching you. We understand you have a black suspect locked up, and if that if he's not there tomorrow morning, we know you, Sheriff Jones, whoever you are, and you're we're going to hold you accountable. So this was a huge thing. There was the idea that these rural areas were becoming more accessible, more in touch with the modern world, uh, and so on. And eventually, it was kind of that old story of like the, you know, the sort of like cleansing effect of sunshine, basically, on things that had been occurring in remote dark places, nooks and crannies, so to speak. Hmm. Uh, uh, now, that this, this is the really final on this, and then we'll take a break and, and go to the fair chase, but I was interested to read that the largest newspaper in Montgomery, uh, the Montgomery Advertiser, um, in covering the opening of that memorial, lynching memorial, mm -hmm. they uh, they essentially published a mea culpa. They, they said, we're sorry for the role we had in the, in the history of lynching in, you know, in, in mm -hmm. this area. A positive development, I, I'm guessing you would agree? No, absolutely. And I mentioned that a moment ago, too, is that, you know, the press was sort of complicit in this. Um, you know, you can go back, uh, you know, the Atlanta Journal, a lot of papers in the South covered these lynchings extensively. Um, you know, it was very, it was, it was melodrama. It was, you know, a, a crime was committed or alleged, the suspect had to be pursued, that often meant that a posse was formed, and there were always a few sort of former Confederates who still had their uniforms that they, you know, they could fit into. And you know, it was a it was a, a gallant sort of gallant thing to do. There was a term they used: determined men. They would say, "Determined men are looking for the suspect." Uh, determined men was a, a euphemism for a, a mob, basically. Uh, and then, of course, there was a whole ritual, very ritualized. Uh, there was a term they used: lynchcraft which was the sort of the style of a lynching, and communities would almost sort of compete to see who could adhere the most to these kind of uh, notions of lynchcraft. But yes, you make a very good point. The press was very involved in it, very 
you know, shamefully, there was very little in the way of sort of, out, you know, speaking out against lynching. Maybe after the fact, someone would, but it took a very long time for people in the South to realize that these were, and wherever these happened, lynchings did occur in the North as well, that these were shameful acts that did not do a community any honor and that they were inhumane and cruel, of course, as well. Um, so yes, the press had a had a pivotal role, and I'm not surprised to hear that the Montgomery paper would uh, would, as you say, give me a couple like that. Well, the lynching memorial is now open, I believe, in Montgomery, Alabama. It'd be interesting to uh, take a take a trip there. The, the pictures alone are, mm-hmm. are very impactful. Well, let's take a break. When yes. we come back, we will uh, turn to the latest book from historian Philip Dre. It's called The Fair Chase, the epic story of hunting in America. Before we go to break, just want to uh, highlight uh, the book we have been talking about, At the Hands of Persons Unknown, The Lynching uh, of Black America. I highly recommend that, that book. We'll talk about the new book, The Fair Chase, following this break. Myths and legends, universal to all cultures, are stories about events. Often, myths include something supernatural, and they are passed down orally from generation to generation. It is very common for a group of people to share a belief about their creation. One creation story from the Bantu tribe of Central Africa begins, In the beginning, there was only darkness, water, and the great god Bumba. One day, Bumba, in pain from a stomachache, vomited up the sun. The sun dried up some of the water, leaving land. Still in pain, Bumba vomited up the moon, the stars, and then some animals, the leopard, the crocodile, the turtle, and finally, some men. Stories such as this provide a shared sense of community and connection to the past. This segment of Anthropology, What's It to You, has been made possible by our members and the USU Museum of Anthropology collection, including pre-Columbian Peruvian ceramics, Indonesian textiles, and Great Basin. Details at anthromuseum.usu.edu. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Salt Lake Express, featuring daily shuttles to downtown Salt Lake and Salt Lake International Airport. Information on bookings available at saltlakeexpress.com. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah today. Our guest for the hour is historian Philip Dre. We've had a stimulating conversation in the first 20 minutes or so of the program about Philip Dre's previous book, At the Hands of Persons Unknown, The Lynching of Black America. And there's a new lynching memorial open in Montgomery, Alabama. So a very timely discussion. Appreciate that discussion. Make a transition now to uh, discussing the new book, The Fair Chase, the Epic Story of Hunting in America. So, Philip Dre, in this book, you uh, write in the uh, the preface that uh, you're, you're not just uh, treating present-day cultural battles, uh, gun and animal rights uh, generally. You're exploring the history of, uh, of hunting in America. And you say that uh, this history, in short, is uh, about nothing less than the shaping of our national uh, temperament. Uh, so that's uh, where I'd like to, to start. Um, and you're talking about sport hunting, right, not subsistence hunting. So where, where did those two diverge? When did those diverge in, in America? Um, well, it's interesting because, of course, a lot there's a lot of overlay overlap between the two. Um, but sport hunting, as I describe it, basically really took off in the early 19th century. Um, you know, it's interesting that in the in the colonial era, in the early say 200 years of the American colonies, um, of course there was a lot of subsistence hunting that went on. But it was interesting because a lot of the the settlers uh, were a little wary of hunters uh, because hunters tended to be subsistence hunters. Uh, they went out in the woods. They lived there for long periods of time, and there was concern that they would become sort of like animals themselves, basically. And, of course, a lot of the Im- uh, the impulse in America at that time was for civilizing, uh, creating towns and villages and farms and communities. So it's kind of interesting that those hunters were often, even though people might benefit from them, there was a little concern that they were a little too rough-hewn. Um, that changed, of course, during the Revolutionary War, when you had the frontiersmen emerge as kind of a hero uh, you know, the musket-bearing uh, Minuteman and so on. And ever after that, of course, then we tended to think of the frontier hunter more in the kind of Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett mode, uh, the buckskin hero of uh, of our country. Um, sport hunting, per se, as a, like an elite pastime, 
I think it really sort of began, began slowly, but in the 1820s, 1830s. Uh, by the 1840s, you actually had national periodicals talking about sport hunting. Um, you have to remember that there, in terms of sport in those days, horse racing was the major sport, really, that everybody was involved in, and that was sort of considered an upstanding uh, pastime. There were a lot of sports that were very a class A, so to speak, uh, like cockfighting, ratting, uh, you know, things that were conducted in basements and, and not really too wholesome, um, dog fights, this sort of thing. And so elite, elite hunting uh, came about as a kind of, it was really, in a certain way, it was an English import. There, were, there was a man named um, Henry William Herbert who wrote, uh, he was one of the first sports writers in America, basically. He wrote under the name Frank Forrester. Uh, and he introduced this idea, which, of course, came, you know, Britain is kind of the home of the elite sportsmen, really. And he, he brought this to America, basically, and said, look, you've got this beautiful country. You've got wildlife like crazy. There's beautiful uh, fowl to hunt. And and he sort of introduced a, like a note of class to it. So initially you had that kind of like conjunction of the sort of skin hunter, uh, that idea, kind of joined by the the new sort of gallant hunter who went off uh, wearing his uh, his corduroys and his his fashionable hat uh, and went into the marshes or into the woods and there was usually a picnic involved and this sort of thing and a flask of whiskey or whatever um, and they kind of introduced this idea of sport hunting um, and it caught on very rapidly. Um, it was at a time when a lot of areas of the United States were first being kind of available for people to go to for recreational purposes. Uh, of course, in those days, you didn't need to go far, right? Where I, where I live in New York, you could go into the marshes in Long Island, in northern New Jersey, which now, of course, are completely industrialized, but in those days were uh, filled with uh, waterfowl and this kind of thing. So... Uh, it was something that a lot of people took to, and it, it very gradually evolved into a kind of middle-class pursuit. Mm. Um, industrialization had a big effect, right? Uh, there was a concern at a right. certain point that men especially were becoming too soft. Right. Well, eventually that's what happened. Especially the real big spurt in sport hunting came after the Civil War. In other words, it's fair to trace its origins to the antebellum phase, but what happened is you had, with the rapid industrialization and also the urbanization of America, uh, you began to have this concern in the late 1860s, 1870s, that American men were, they didn't have anything, you know, the Civil War had been sort of the last sort of glorious, manly thing one could volunteer for. Um, now people were like, well, you're sitting at a desk. And, of course, the advocates of hunting were very good at sort of prodding uh other men to say, like, come on, what do you, you have to get out there? You've got to get back to nature and, and do something challenging with your, <laughs> you know, they, they have a term, they would say, too much Miss Nancy-ness, Nancy-ness. Um, you know, they, they would bait people, basically, and it really did kind of work, because they managed these magazines that promoted, like, uh, early versions of, of course, now we call it Field and Stream, it was initially called Forest and Stream. Uh, were very successful at promoting the idea of sport hunting and advertising places around the country where one could go and be greeted by those in the hunting fraternity and so on. Um, and, of course, there was a wide variety of hunting one could do. You could go to the Great Plains. You could hunt buffalo. Uh, there were all sorts of, you know, grizzly bear, cougar, um, antelope. Uh, closer to home, wherever you might be in the south, there were different sort of, you know, you could hunt gators, uh, or you go up north near the Canadian border and look for moose. So there's just like a enormous variety of hunting options for people. Um, and it was taken up very eagerly, not only by men, there were women hunters as well. I mean, the promoters of hunting promoted the idea from the very beginning that women would also enjoy it, partly because they wanted to show that this was a sophisticated pastime. Um, that was very important at the time, because as I mentioned, in the 19th century, a lot of sports were considered a little bit like low class. So the idea that hunting was for gentle people, it was something you did, it was a, you know, and of course that, we still see that in a way, because of course hunting is a very regulated sport. It's a sport where people are 
trusted in a way to use their best conscience when they're out in the field alone even to obey certain ethical regulations about taking animal life, um, observing game regulations and limits and that sort of thing. And that all kind of comes from what they used to call true sportsmanship, this idea that germinated in the 19th century that the sport of hunting was one that was to be conducted in a gentlemanly uh, fashion. Uh, tell me a little more about that. That became fair chase, right? Fair chase ethos? Yes, that was a, there was something um, in the 1880s, Theodore Roosevelt and a man named George Bird Grinnell, who was the editor of Forest and Stream, uh, founded something called the Boone and Crockett Club, named after the Pathfinder heroes Boone and Crockett, obviously. Um, it was a hunting club, and among its, among its mission or its provisions, basically, was an idea of what they called fair chase. What this meant really was, and this is fair chase is a concept that's still with us, and it's always evolving. It basically had to do with bringing fair methods to hunting. In other words, things... At that time, when they first founded it, for instance, they were fighting a battle to end the practice of killing deer in the Adirondacks by driving them into large bodies of water. As we know, that is a way, if you force a deer into the water and chase it in a boat, you have an enormous advantage over it. And you, people would even, you know, sometimes they would even drown the deer. They didn't even have to shoot it. And so a lot of sportsmen rebelled against this and Teddy Roosevelt among them, and said, this has to end, we can't, this is not hunting. In other words, I think we all know these things, basically. Any of us who hunt or fish know that when you go out, there are certain things you're not really supposed to do. It's not respectful of wildlife. It's just, it's, it's just not fair, basically. Today it might have to do with using bait or trail cameras or drones or that sort of thing, but in those days it had to do with the way in which animals were pursued, usually, so that they did not have a fair chance to evade uh, evade a hunter. Does it, these uh, you referenced, you brought it forward to today. I'm wondering. I'm not a hunter myself. Are, is is that ethos? Is that being brought forward? That it's out of bounds to use a drone or you know cameras and that. So the high high tech for for one example. As as far as I know. Uh, I mean, I think these things always evolve, and obviously, I don't think it's a question so much of whether these are legal or not. I think it has to do with just a hunter's ethos. The fair chase is more like an ethos that uh, is observed by conscientious hunters. I'm not a hunter myself, to be honest with you. My sense of most hunters today is that the fair chase ethos has been successful in that I think most hunters are, they do take these things seriously. And again, it has to do with observing the regulations and proceeding in a way that is not uh, cutting corners, basically. I'm sure it goes on, um, but at least the ethos is there. And I think a lot, of, a lot of the hunters that I've encountered, at least, I get the idea that they take it very seriously. They're very interested in the natural science of wildlife and wildlife habitat. And, of course, they're very obsessed and concerned, usually, with their own technical proficiency, they, their mastery of the equipment they're using, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe I've just met the good kind of hunters, right. but I get that sense about yeah. them overall. Yeah, I, I, I've, I meet the same kind of hunters uh, here in Utah, so probably not too far off. Uh, so this then led to at least one of the main precursors to the, the whole conservation movement, right? Well, that's right, because it was the hunters who, of course, who was more aware of what was going on with the nation's wildlife than hunters? They were the ones who were out there. And it was, you know, it's interesting because a lot of the leaders, people like Roosevelt, there was a man named William Hornaday, who was a, one of the most famous taxidermists in America and a hunter. A lot of these people were the first ones to say, well, we have to pull back. Because what they saw, of course, was that animal populations were diminishing rapidly. Um... That wasn't always due to sport hunting, as you know. It had to do with what they call market hunting. Um, that's something different than hunting for sustenance, like people often or have always done. Market hunting was most famously or infamously in America was, of course, the killing off of the buffalo, which happened in a very brief period of time, say from 1860s up until around in like 20 years, basically. Mm-hmm. And this, of course, involved teams of hunters going out into the plains and really just mowing down buffalo uh, for their hides. And it went on uh, like a bit, it was a business, basically. Um, 
and it had a devastating effect, as we know. And again, it was the hunters who first raised the alarm. They said, where are the buffalo herds, and where did the passengers pigeon, passenger pigeons all go? And of course, even the white-tailed deer became came to be scarce in some places. So it was the hunters who initially raised the flag and said, something has to be done. And so that's why you get this Boone and Crockett Club, people like Roosevelt, George Bird Grinnell, William Hornaday, are the first people to really come out and say, we have to have a movement, we have to come together and, and, and be more conscientious about this. Um, and so as we know, a lot of, you know, Roosevelt, of course, he became president. He presided over the founding of almost countless, like, you know, game reserves, uh, forest preserves, and so on. Um, and this was seen this was seen in a kind of widespread way. Um, and, you know, eventually you get to people like Aldo Leopold, a game who introduced the idea of game management in the early 20th century. All these people were hunters. They loved the sport. Many of them never quite gave it up. Some did, like Hornaday. But their idea was that we had to start looking at the environment differently. And again, that was because these were hunters, and they were the people who were probably most engaged with the nation's wildlife and its, and its habitat. And now if you fast forward by decades, then you have a sometimes uneasy relationship, sometimes very cooperative, but sometimes uneasy between uh, you know the hunters, hunting communities, and, uh, and the environmentalists. Well, of course, you, you, you have this, um, for instance, in, you know, say, like Yellowstone Park, a place like that, you know, there was an ongoing, you know, the U.S. Army had to be brought in there to police it because, of course, the local residents resisted the conservationists who wanted to <clears throat> preserve wildlife within the park or at least control it. And the local people, and this, of course, was repeated all around the country, local people saying, well, wait a minute, we've been living here for years. We're, we're used to cutting down the timber. We... We kill the animal, we take the wildlife as we need it, and so on. And now you're coming in, who are you, to tell us what, what to do and what not to do? And it's an amazing kind of, it's interesting in a way that that battle was basically won by the fair chase ethos and the conservation movement. In other words, ultimately, it wasn't always pretty, but they, the fact that today we, we live with game management laws, with hunting regulations, People pay an excise tax on hunting goods that, of course, goes towards conservation, and so on and so on. That whole world basically came out of the kind of progressive nature of the conservation movement and, by extension, fair chase, hunting, and so on. So it's a very interesting subject and one that there are no clear answers about. In other words, hunting, you know, a lot of people, as we know, there are a lot of anti-hunters, people who don't like it, they don't think it's right. Um, on the other hand, hunters have been very much, they still are in Utah, I know for a fact, there are huge conservation programs that hunters basically volunteer for and manage. Um, and so it's, you know, it's one of those, uh, is the glass half empty or half full kind of things. Um, it's hard to say. And that's one reason I should say right out that that's one reason I wrote the book, is I wanted to talk about hunting not like a red state, blue state issue, which is often seems to come down to, like good, bad, but rather like this is a complicated issue. It's part of our history. It's been with us all along and helped kind of nurture us in a way. And it's not just a simple thing of this person's right, that person's wrong, and so on. Uh, it's much more intricate. And so in a way that's what drew me to the subject in the first mm -hmm. place. Yeah, I think you've accurately described the... The conversations that do go on, sometimes debates, sometimes cooperative conversations uh, here in Utah uh, between the, the hunters mm -hmm. and, and, the, and the broader environmental uh, community. Let's take another break. We'll come back more with uh, historian Philip Dre. His new book is The Fair Chase, The Epic Story of Hunting in America. On the next Radio Lab. Colors. When two people look at a rainbow... Do you see some of the pink and the blue? Do they see the same thing? See, I see a lot of pink. Like, do you see that? No. All the Greeks were colorblind. All of them were colorblind? Yes. They saw the world in black and white, maybe with a touch of red. Join us for Radio Lab. Join us tomorrow morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. 
Puerto Rico was extremely unprepared for Hurricane Maria's devastation last fall. One reason has little to do with the weather. The government of Puerto Rico was run as a big Ponzi scheme. An NPR and Frontline report on how government borrowing and Wall Street dealing left Puerto Rico on the verge of economic collapse as a Category 4 storm barreled toward the island. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Join us this afternoon from 3 to 6.30 with Shalane Smith and Needham on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with Philip Dre. The latest book is The Fair Chase, the epic story of hunting in America. Philip Dre says that uh, even though uh, maybe 6% of Americans hunt, almost 70% of Americans say they recognize hunting as a legitimate recreation. The point of the book is that uh, hunting has had an outsized effect on uh, our history, our uh, views on nature and wildlife, our notions of self-reliance. It's uh, about nothing less, Phil Dre says, than our national character. I want to uh, talk just a little bit. We just only have about six minutes left. The conversation. Um, okay. Teddy Roosevelt looms so large here, as you as you <laughs> would imagine he would. Um, and my understanding of Teddy Roosevelt is that he had this idea that you, you you go out into the wilderness and you test yourself as as a man. I don't know if that's an accurate assessment. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. He was, he saw, you know, Roosevelt, he thought hunting was our national pastime. Uh, and he wasn't far off, really, especially in his day. And he saw it as a, yeah, absolutely an essential shaping of the national character. Um, you know, it was, he wasn't alone. There was a common belief around the end of the 19th century or so that a country like Britain, say, that had a rich hunting heritage that that's where its kind of international stature had come from, basically. The way it, it was a dominant country had to do with the fact that its people were raised on hunting, and that this sort of imbued them with certain skills of courage and perseverance, what have you. And Roosevelt saw that as very important here in America as well, and he thought we needed to be a nation of those kind of people who, you know, when he would get explicit about it, he would basically say, you know, hunters Young hunters are tomorrow's soldiers, basically, and explorers and conquerors. And of course, he put this to you. He put this. Uh, he was his own example, of course, with the ride up San Juan Hill, the Rough Riders, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, and the Rough Riders, uh, which is a term he borrowed, by the way, from Wild Bill, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, Buffalo Bill Cody, rather, the Rough Riders of the Wild West show. That was Roosevelt became his Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders. Um, so he tried to, and also his involvement even with the Boy Scouts. He looked upon, that was an argument that emerged in the early 20th century, was are the Boy Scouts going to be militarized, or are they just, a, is it more like a boys club or whatever? And, of course, people like Roosevelt and others said, no, the Boy Scouts, they, they as well need to be brought along in this kind of hunting hunting uh, uh, ethos and such. And so, yes, you're absolutely right. It was, and, of course, that's a very, still remains a strong, you know, I think that's, it's a theme that's never completely died out, the idea uh, that Americans have this unique heritage and that hunting is, is part has partly shaped. One of the, the big subtopics here is uh, intera- interactions and uh, the, America's whole history with Native Americans. Uh, hunters, uh, you know, as America was seizing Native American lands, they apparently admired Native American hunting techniques and, and appropriated many aspects of the hunting culture. Gets to the whole, that whole idea of appropriation. No, absolutely. Well, of course, that went on in so many ways. As America moved westward, the settlers encountered the Native tribes. And, of course, the Native Americans had been the original hunters, uh, especially in the, on the Great Plains. And, of course, the settlers who arrived... Uh, this, these became their mentors, basically. This is where they learned. And even before, even even when, even during the colonial phase, uh, you know, that's why you see a lot of people like Dave, Daniel Boone wearing buckskin. In other words, they learned so many things about moving quietly through the forest, how to track animals. As any hunter will tell you, that's a huge, usually important skill, knowing how to find animals, how to track them, how to examine their their leavings even to see what they've been eating where they might be these are all things that whites largely learned from native tribes who taught them their methods um and it was 
it's something that really went on all the way into the early 20th century when, you know, I don't know if you read in the book, there's like, a, there was a an Indian who uh, emerged from the woods in California. His name was Ishii, and he wound up actually teaching archery techniques, archery hunting techniques, to researchers at the University of California. That these were techniques that were unknown to them that this Native American had possessed, and he was one of the last people to know that have this knowledge. And it's interesting because the archery community, hunting archery community, still hails him as kind of a, a, a guiding light in a way, Ishii, for his his ability to explain how to hunt with bow and arrow. So, yeah, it's a long tradition that you mentioned that you're referring to of Native Americans kind of inducting others into the art of the hunt. Well, we've reached the uh, end of our hour. Uh, didn't even get into guns, which is, uh, so you'll have to read that in the book. But, uh, yeah. of course, this is, uh, this is bound up with our whole uh, debate uh, about guns today. Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, Philip Dre has been uh, with us. He is a historian. He's written or co-authored seven books on American history and culture. We've talked about two of those on the program today. Highly recommend both of those. Earlier in the conversation, we talked about At the Hands of Persons Unknown, The Lynching of Black America. And uh, we have been talking the second part of the program about the new book, The Fair Chase, The Epic Story of Hunting in America. Philip Dre, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Eric Westervelt. The purpose of our actions tonight is to establish a strong deterrent against the production, spread, and use of chemical weapons. Retired Army General Jack Keane says President Trump was right to strike Syria, but he argues the U.S. needs to do even more against the Assad regime. The case for deeper Syria intervention, next time on Here and Now. Join us for Hour 2 of Here and Now today at noon on Utah Public Radio. Hey, I'm J.L. Richardson. Tom Power is back behind the mic. He'll be talking to Jake Tapper, someone you might know best as a news anchor on CNN. But get this, he's just written his first novel, a political thriller called The Hellfire Club. That's coming up on Cube from PRI, Public Radio International. Join us this afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Tune in for Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Accept your intelligence. Coming up, are we alone? Who cares if we're alone in the universe? Well, if there are other intelligent life forms out there, then we're not so special anymore, Josh. Maybe we wouldn't be special, but at least we'd have company. Yeah, but would it be good company or bad company? Are we alone? Next time on Philosophy Talk. Join us tomorrow at 4 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. They call it God's own country, but for growing food, Kerala in India is less than heavenly. Because people were moving away from farming, they are into other occupation. So the land is lying fallow. So people with other interests seeing the cheap land come and buy. But rooftop gardeners and the government are getting things growing again. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Join us Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard and streaming online at upr.org.